thought I'd start this morning by just listing all the um, thoughtful, loving, romantic things Doug's done for me this Valentine's Day. Okay, yeah, I'm done. <laughs> um, we've never really celebrated Valentine's Day in our family. Well, not in the sense that we've bought big expensive gifts and done grand gestures. But I'm a big believer in taking every opportunity to tell people that you love in your life that you love them and that they're special. And um, when I was a teenager, um, my parents used to do something for my sisters and I. I'm the youngest of three girls. And um, I'm sure it wasn't my parents. I'm sure it was my mum. But um, I've tried to continue that tradition with our girls. And um, this morning, I gave, we gave them an envelope. But you know that means I gave them an envelope. Uh, that had a heart puzzle in it. Um, that had been, a heart that had been cut into pieces. And that when they put it together, it says, I love you to pieces, always and forever, your mother and your father. And um, I did say father. And when Brookie, our eldest, who's over there, was uh, at a certain age, she didn't know how to spell father. So she, she used to write cards, love you, a happy father's day and all that. But um, what was really funny is it just so aptly describes Doug. <laughs> so um, that's why I made the heart message say, um, happy Mother and Father's Day. Um, I remember Valentine's Day um, a few years ago and um, Doug was looking at me with that, you know that loving look someone gives you when you're just, they're about to say something quite momentous and he just looked at me and he just was gazing at me adoringly and um, he said to me, do you ever wake up in the night and think, I'm so lucky to be married to someone like you because I know I often wake up in the night and he stopped, he came, he took my hand and he looked in my eyes and he said, I often think, man, Nicole's lucky to be married to someone like me. <laughs> True story that. Um, this morning we're going to be continuing our series on the great redemption stories in the Bible. And I've really enjoyed, as I've prepared this message, learning about Esther and refreshing my mind about the story of Esther. And um, while Mordecai is a key character, Esther's the one I've really put the spotlight on this morning. Um, I'm going to be... I think it's quite a fitting story for Valentine's Day because it's a real love story. Now, I'm, I'm not talking about romantic love because it's definitely not that. Uh, I'm talking about the love for a woman, for her father figure, uncle, a love for her people and for her God and, a, and an amazing, redeeming love of a God for his people. Um, I just wanted to start by, before I delve into it, just giving you a bit of information about Esther. So it's a really unique book in the Bible for two particular reasons. Number one reason is there's only two books in the Bible that are named after women, and Esther is one of them. And secondly, because in the original manuscripts of the story of Esther, um, there's no mention of God, as in God's name, the pronoun God, is not mentioned. It's, it is now in the versions that we read. But um, traditionally, it wasn't, his name wasn't mentioned. There's no reference to faith or worship. It doesn't predict, predict the Messiah. There's no mention of heaven or hell. There's nothing religious about it. Well, not on the surface anyway. The story of Esther um, would make an amazing box office hit. It's got drama. It's got power. We'll call it romance. It's got intrigue. There's a heroine, a hero, a villain. There's royalty, palaces, feasts, 
a murderous plot or two, and the most amazing, wonderful plot twist right at the end. There are so many lessons to be learned in the book of Esther. So uh, before we get started on those, let me just fill you in on just one more point. And that is that Esther's story begins when King Xerxes... Now, I had to spend a bit of time practising saying these names, and I was just really hoping that you would just all smile when I said that, just in case I'd said it wrong. But I, I googled it, and that's how you say it. Uh, King Xerxes, is that right, Graham? you reckon? I reckon. Close enough. She'll be right, mate. Um, the other name is Ahasuerus. That's what he's called in some Bible translations, but I'm going to use the name Xerxes today. He was um, in his third year of his reign um, when the story of Esther begins, and he reigned in um, Persia for 21 years, and he was a very powerful king. Um, he ruled from the capital of Susa, and it was a vast empire. In fact, we're told that in, in his time, he was the most powerful man on earth ruling 127 provinces. And the story of Esther begins with a banquet. And it was held by the king. And we're told that military leaders, princes, nobles, and from all over the provinces were invited to this banquet. Now, that would have been a lot of people. And banquets weren't unusual back in those days. In fact, every king and his other king uh, were having banquets. But what was different about this banquet was that it lasted for 180 days. That's six months, and I just want to say, bags not do the dishes. Um, and during those six months, the king took every opportunity he could to show off his kingdom and his wealth and power, and there were gold goblets and mother-of-pearl tables and all that kind of jazz. And after the 180 days was over, he didn't stop there. He, he threw another banquet. But this time, um, it was only for a week, thank goodness. And, but it was, it was hosted for the people who lived in the capital, for all the people from the greatest to the least were invited to his second feast. And at the same time, the king's queen, Queen Vashti, she was holding her own banquet for the woman of the palace. And on the seventh day of the king's, king's banquet, when he was a bit horsey, so this is a new word in my vocabulary. My girls have taught me this word. Horsey means a little bit drunk, quite drunk. So if, I, if you go away with nothing today from my message other than one more word in your colloquial word knowledge, Horsey means a little bit drunk. So the king was a little bit horsey and he called for the, his queen to be brought to him so that he could show her off to his guests. Now, I don't know about you, but one of the people I feel a little bit sorry for in the Esther story is Queen Vashti because I think she was probably a woman ahead of her time. She was strong and she was independent. And um, a lot of theologians have a, a whole lot of list of reasons why she may have said or done what she did, but the Queen did the absolute unthinkable thing. She said no. She refused to go to the King. And, well, there's no other way to say it, but the King got really, really angry. In fact, uh, he totally lost it, and he overreacted. And with the advice of his counsellors, he decided that he would banish Vashti from the Kingdom, and he would choose someone else to take her spot. Not only that, he dispatched an edict throughout the whole land saying that men should be the rulers of their household, which I think means cook the men some eggs. You know, like the movie? Anyway, I thought that was funny, but no, you don't. That's okay. Um, when he calmed down, he actually realised 
all the things he liked about her. And, uh, but of course, in their culture, an edict in Persian time was irreversible. So once it was set, you couldn't, you couldn't unset it. So he knew he'd never see her again. So again, he, his counsellors um, and advisors came up with a great idea, and that was um, to have a beauty contest and find Miss Persia. Well, I might have done a bit of paraphrasing there, but I think you get the idea. The plan was to send a scout to every province of the king's realm to gather the beauties and bring them back to the harem in Susa. Once there, they'd undertake a year of beauty treatments. They'd enhance their beauty and pamper their bodies and practice with makeup and jewellery and clothing, and then um, they would be presented to the king. And the king would get one night with each of them before he chose his new queen. And it really makes you realise that the idea for The Bachelor is probably, the TV programme The Bachelor is not very unique. It started back in Persian times. Um, it all sounds a bit yuck really, doesn't it? But that's kind of just how things were done back then. Kings collected wealth and they seemed to collect women. And it's at this point that Esther enters the story. We're told in chapter 2, verse 5, that there was a Jew who lived in Susa named Mordecai. Mordecai and his descendants came to live in Susa over a hundred years ago, but it wasn't by their choice. They were, they were brought as captives of war. They, they were carried into exile from Jerusalem when Jerusalem was destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar. Mordecai, he had a much younger cousin who he brought up as, as his own daughter um, because her parents had died and her name... Her Jewish name was Hadassah, but she was also known as Esther, which was her Persian name, which meant star. Now, she was incredibly beautiful, and so much so that she must have caught the attention of the scouts because they, they took her to the harem at Susa with all the other women, probably hundreds of women. And um, I'm sure that most of the women in the kingdom would have just been really excited about the chance to be, potentially compete to become the next Miss. Persia, the next queen of Persia. But I think it's safe to say that Esther would not have been one of them. She, she, why would she want to? She was a Jewess. She would have been taken from her family, the only, only people she had in the world. She'd be spending a year in a harem with hundreds of other women that culminated in a night with a heathen king that might lead to the possibility of intermarriage outside of her race. The scriptures say, say she was taken, but I think it's safe to uh, say it was with great reluctance that she went. And this brings me to my first point and one of the lessons we can learn from Esther, the power of posture. Can you imagine what it must have been like in that harem? I'm, I'm a teacher and I work um, in a school that's predominantly staffed with women. And we have some great times, but we have some interesting times, if you know what I mean. There would have been an incredible competitive spirit in that harem. All those women, petty rivalries, infighting, envy, jealousy... And yet everywhere Esther went, she found favour in people's eyes, from the king's servant to the other woman and eventually to the king. It says in Esther 2, verse 8 to 9, When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had, cha who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favour. Immediately, he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and he moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. 
It says there that she pleased him and won his favour, but the little literal translation in the original language says she lifted grace before his face. Isn't that a beautiful image? Though she was brought to a harem and participated in things that maybe she was very reluctant to do, Esther didn't display a poor attitude or a bitter spirit. So gracious was she that Haggai provided her with everything she needed. Esther 2, 15-17 says, When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihel, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what the Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favour of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his approval she won his favour and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Last year I had a big birthday, the kind of birthday that has a zero at the end. And if you double the number, there's two zeros at the end. Are you with me? Are you with me? I don't have to say it out loud. Um, I joke, but I, it honestly didn't bother me at all, turning 50. I mean, to begin with, it was at the end of lockdown, so no one really knew anyway. But um, I think getting old is a privilege, and we, we live in a culture that um, that elevates youth, but I think we need to elevate um, that, the beauty of getting older too in all its forms. I mean, eight being able to grow old is something that is um, denied to many, so we need to celebrate it. Um, however, I, I got me looking around at other women who were the same age as me or a bit older, and I thought, why is it that some women look older than other women, and, and some women just have a youthfulness about them? What, what is it? And I know you're going to say, well, there's Botox and there's filler. And, yeah. No, I'm not talking about that. I, I noticed that, that women that had good posture when they held themselves, just looked different. And as I say that, Ella is putting her shoulders back. <laughs> I've got a couple of friends, one I, one I teach with who's the same age as me and another friend who's a little bit younger than me, but they have the most amazing posture. Like They kind of walk into the room and it's like, hello, here I am. And, and it doesn't matter what they're wearing, it doesn't matter um, how they're feeling, they just, they just look just graceful and, I don't know, it's really enviable. And um, so I've been trying to work on my posture a bit. And um, the, the awesome thing about posture is that we all potentially could have good posture because we've all got the same muscles as the people with the good posture. Um, the difference is they just choose to activate those muscles. I've, I've been reading a little bit about something called muscle memory, which basically is the fact that our body stores information about um, movements that we repeat frequently until those motions become instinctive and something we do without even thinking. They become our modus operandi. It got me thinking about internal posture, the kind that's got nothing to do with muscles and everything to do with character. How do you hold yourself when things go wrong, when people disappoint you or criticise you, when you make a mistake? What's your attitude like at work? How do you cope when others are getting pregnant around you and you've been trying to for ages but can't? What are you like when someone at work gets promoted in a position that you 
applied for and then they win it but they're not the best candidate for the job. How do you cope when a friend of yours who's got a loved one who's dying of cancer but gets cancer treatment and is healed but your loved one doesn't? That was my reality about 14 years ago when I lost my dad to cancer. What do people, what are you known for? Lately I've been trying to improve my, um, my posture externally but also asking the Lord to reveal to me things about my internal posture that my, I might need to work on. Um, as I said before, I'm a teacher and at school, um, apart from the principal, the caretaker and one male teacher, we're a total female staff and um, there's a lot of talking, lots and lots of talking and, and you know the police say they've got the best work stories but I really think teachers have the best work stories. <laughs> um, the kids, especially younger kids, they just say the funniest things, there's just, some, there's just no filter. Um, I, I team teach with a lady and one of the wee girls in our class this year said to my friend, my sister said you were really, really stern, but you're not stern at all. You're actually quite nice. <laughs> and the other day when I had a birthday, um, I said the kids asked how old I was and someone said that they thought I might have been 100. And then someone said, no, she's not silly, she's only 16. I'm like, that is my new favourite child. Um, but anyway... Just with the speaking, in the staff room often we're talking about things and, and sometimes the conversation sort of degenerates and they might, teachers sometimes talk about kids and it's a, it's a good way of sort of debriefing and, and getting it off your head but I've just noticed that, that sometimes the conversation gets negative and, and I've just been really challenged to think about the words that come out of my mouth and um, making sure that the words that I speak bring life and, that, and, the, and God's word said there's the power of life and death is in the tongue. And so I've been working at making sure that, um, that when I'm at school and I'm part of those conversations that um, I try, take control of my own tongue but try and maybe take control of the conversation as well. Recently um, in a sermon, Glenn shared a list of indicators that your soul is doing well. Does anyone remember those? I'm... Doug wrote them down and he's got them on the wall at his work and, and I really love it. it. These are some of them, the ones that really spoke to me. Compliment more than you complain. Contribute more than you consume. Celebrate more than you criticise. Be more grateful rather than entitled. Be quick to forgive rather than holding grudges. You know, having a good internal posture doesn't change the circumstances you find yourself in, but it does change your response and what happens next. See, at school, when the conversation starts to get negative or talking about other people, um, I've got some choices to make, and one of the things I try and do is not engage in the conversation and steer it in another direction. See, I can't stop my friends from talking about other people, but I can control my part in it. There's something about Esther that set her apart from others, and while she was an incredibly beautiful woman, I think it was the beauty of the inside that drew others to her. I think it was her power of posture. The next lesson in the story that I want to share with you is in chapter 3. And it's easy to read stories in the Bible and not realise the framework for which things happen in. We read phrases like, after that, or later on, or then, and we think maybe a day or two has gone past, maybe five 
six days, but in fact it can be a week, a month, two, five or even ten years later. For example, in the story with Queen Vashti is expelled at the end of chapter 2, the very end of chapter 2. At the beginning of chapter 3, it says, later when King Cersei's fury had subsided. It's easy to assume that would have been like, you know, a few days later when he calmed down. But actually, we know that the, um, the banquet was held on his third year of reign when he banished Vashti, and it was in the tenth month of the seventh year of his reign that Esther became queen. So, that process was several years. Equally, sometimes to fully grasp stories in scripture, we need to go back in time to understand the history behind something before an event happened. And this is the case with my next point, the power of prejudice. I think maybe really the title should have been the destructive power of prejudice because that's what prejudice does. It destroys things. It destroys people. Since Esther became queen, a few things have happened. Mordecai exposed the plot to kill the king, and this was recorded in the history books of the king's reign. And I want you to remember that fact because it's going to come into play a little bit later on. He also became a government official. Haman, enter stage, our evil villain, um, has been promoted to the second most powerful position in the kingdom. And we read in Esther 3, verse 1 to 6, after these events, King Xerxes honoured Haman, son of Hamadath the Agite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honour higher than that of all the other nobles. All the officials, all the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honour to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel or pay him honour. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behaviour would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In Persian culture, um, kings and their nobles were considered divine, which meant they were worshipped as gods and people were expected to bow down before them. However, as a Jew, this went against um, Mordecai's deepest convictions. To bow down to a person or thing, well, that was idolatry, putting another person before God. Whenever two cultures come together, there's always a little bit of a rub until each group learns, understands and respects the values of the other culture. But we read in these verses that Haman had a deep-seated hate for Mordecai. Where did that come from? Was it really just because Mordecai wouldn't bow down? The answer to that can be found in a small statement that's easy to miss at the beginning of verse 1. It says, when it's explaining Haman's genealogy, that Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agite. Now, if you know your Bible history, and I have to confess I had to brush up on mine, um, you'll know tucked away in the folds of 1 Samuel, there's a story about King Saul who was told by God through Samuel the prophet to kill the Am Amalekites. And they were the lifelong enemy of the Jews. And um, how the story goes is Saul decided that maybe he knew better and that rather than killing everyone, including the animals, that maybe he would just save the best animals for himself and off, we'll just let that King Agar go. Agar. Agar. Ag ag oh. That guy, go. Um, 
Later on, he did realise he'd mucked up, and the prophet Samuel had to clean up after him, and he hunted and killed down Aga the king. Now, the Agites, Haman's people, were descendants of the Amalekites, and they took their name from King Aga. So they would have passed the story about down from generation to generation about these terrible Jews who had killed their descendants. So Haman's father would have told him and his grandfather and great-grandfather and great-great-grandfather before him would have done the same. Prejudice is prejudging another person or group of people. It's a preconceived idea or opinion that is not based on fact or experience. And I'd like to add that prejudice is really ignorance. It's a good time to mention that no one is born with prejudice. Prejudice is not a package deal that comes with birth. Prejudice is something we have to learn, something we're trained in. We're not born hating. We've got to be taught to hate. As parents or anyone who teaches or shapes others, we need to be careful that we don't pass on our own wrong ideas and opinions to our children or those in, in who we are in care of. In fact, I think we actually need to go a step further and, and we actually need to be actively responsible for teaching them about acceptance and inclusion. Um, when we were kids, um, my, my dad, my mum and dad didn't go to church, but they were really hard-working, honest people. And, and um, my, I just remember my dad, and he, and he must have told us lots because all of my sisters have the same memory, and that is dad distinctly said to us, don't ever treat someone differently because of the job they do. Someone's got to pick up the rubbish and someone's got to run the country. Don't change the way you treat that person based on the job they do. John 13 verse 35 says, By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. When we, when we show prejudice, not only are we showing ignorance, but we're actually saying that God's a liar because God says that he loves all of us the same, but prejudice says one group of people is better than another which is in, in contradiction to what God says. Esther 3, verse 8 to 11, the story continues. Then Haman said to Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in the province of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all the other people, and they don't obey the king's laws. It's not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators of the royal treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. So Haman got the permission from the king to annihilate the Jews. He got an extermination plan put in writing in the form of an edict and stamped with the king's very own signet ring. One of the most powerful things in the kingdom, apart from the king, was that ring. If it was stamped on a document, that was law. And that edict was issued in 127 provinces and said that every Jew, from the greatest to the least, from the youngest to the oldest, every man, woman and child had to be killed and no one was to be left alive but their belongings were free to be plundered. The kicker was that Haman released this edict in the first month of the year, but it was to be actioned in the twelfth month of the year. So can you imagine being a Jewish person living in Susa or even in the whole provinces of Persia and hearing about that edict and realising that in 11, month, 11 and a half months' time or whenever your town received the edict, that you would be killed? They must have 
just been living in fear and dread. It must have just been horrible. It's kind of cruelty on a whole new level. So it's, it's horrible to do horrible things to people, but to say, it's a bit like a bully says, I'm going to beat you up after school, then all day, what are you thinking about? Them beating you up. And it's a bit like that with Haman's plan, but just exponentially worse. See, these thoughts of Haman's about the Jews started as prejudice. They grew to hatred, and then they escalated to murderous intentions, and frankly, pure evil. And while it's easy, us sitting here reading about Haman, thinking, gosh, he was not a very nice guy, he was pretty evil, it's really important to remember that um, each one of us has the potential to follow in his exact footsteps. Unforgiveness, unchecked, can poison your life and your thinking. If, if you allow anger and grudges to fester, if we make plans for revenge for those people who have hurt us, we will quite likely end up not only hurting others, but also hurting ourselves. We need to allow God's Holy Spirit to convict us about unforgiveness that we may have towards other people and ask his help on a daily basis. The power of one, the third lesson. When Mordecai heard about Haman's horrific edict, he dressed in sackcloth and ashes and went and mourned outside the city gate. Now that was a thing that people did to show their extreme um, sadness. In our culture, we cry a little bit, but in, in Middle Eastern culture, they used to wail and cry and change the way they dressed and throw things on themselves, and that was the case with Mordecai. Esther in the palace, she would have been quite isolated from what was happening in the courts and in the outer courts. And it was only when her assistants came to her and told her that what Mordecai was doing that she became incredibly distressed. And, and even more when she learnt the reason why he was wearing sackcloth and ashes and at the city gates. And long story short, messages were sent back and forth between Esther and her, with her personal assistants through to Mordecai and Basically, Mordecai said to Esther that she had to go to the king and, and beg for mercy for her people. And, um, and this was her response. All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned by the king, has, he has what, but one law, that they be put to death unless, unless the king extends a gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will, be, will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Don't you love that line? It's kind of like, um, as a parent of teenagers, you know, um, you often talk to them about things and you, you have little, I say, learning moments. My girls prefer to call them lectures. But um, sometimes as a parent, you, you say something and it's like you just inside, you're like, yeah, high five. I got that one right. And I think um, Heyman would have been having a high five moment when he made that statement because it was just so powerful. And... Um, Esther's response must have made him feel incredibly proud as her father figure because when she was told what Haman had, uh, Mordecai had said, she, her response to him was, um, was that she'd do what he'd said. 
She showed her incredible character, but also the love and respect she had for him. She told him she'd do what he asked, but that could he please gather all the Jews uh, in Susa and fast and pray for three days and three nights as she'd be doing with her attendants. This was serious stuff, people. She kind of knew that if she went into his presence and he didn't extend the scepter that she was dead. And um, it took incredible courage. She was willing to stand up for what she believed in, even when it meant probable death. The thing I love about courage is it's a bit like prejudice in that you're not born with it. Anyone can be courageous. It's not dependent on our ability and it's not dependent on our age. Yes. But it's a choice, a willingness to stand. History is full of individuals who have made a difference. Military battles that have turned on the axis of one heroic person. Think of artists, scientists, inventors and explorers who have literally changed our history. When you read the Bible, it's often individual men or women who have stood and done what is right that have made a difference. Did they not face struggles? Did they just stand? Was it easy? No, it wasn't. I read this the other day and it really inspired me and I thought I'd share it with you. So many times when things in our life get worse before they get better, harder before easier, darker before lighter, we doubt. We doubt God, we doubt his calling, we doubt his faithfulness. I guess he didn't open that door. I guess he didn't call me. I guess this isn't his will. When did God say that it would be easy? When did he say it would be effortless? Closed doors do not mean that God is not opening a way. Increased cost does not mean God is not calling. The presence of a battle does not mean the absence of God in the war. Trials don't mean we are out of the will of God. They often mean we are exactly in the will of God, right where we're supposed to be, doing exactly what we're supposed to be doing, fighting the good fight of faith, standing and believing. And what a model Esther was in this, a woman with courage to much courage to match her convictions. If we learn one lesson from the story of Esther, it's never underestimate the power of one, one person to make a difference. In our modern world, which is um, drowned in social media, we're constantly confronted with ideas and images that makes us compare ourselves to other people. And sometimes it means we discount, our, discount ourselves as being unworthy. But let me tell you, there was no one like you in the whole of the earth. There never has been and there never will be. You are absolutely and totally unique. You have been born in this point of history for a reason. Your life doesn't have to be perfect for you to make a powerful difference. I love this quote from the 18th century evangelist and founder of the Methodist Church, John Wesley. It's a bit repetitive, but you'll understand what I mean when I read it to you. Do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, for as long as you ever can. Where has God placed you? Make the choice to live out your faith in practical ways, in your home, in the place of work, and in your community. Speak up. Have a voice. Stand in the gap against prejudice. Choose to be courageous like Esther. And now, 
or the finer point. And you're probably thinking, when will she shut up so we can have coffee? This is the last point, the power of timing. Before I get to the verses on the screen, I just need to quickly cover what's happened next in the story because this is kind of like the real super juicy bit. After three days of fasting and praying, our courageous heroine approaches the king and, hallelujah, he extends his scepter to her and he welcomes her into his court. Then he asks her what she wants. He basically says, whatever you want, it's yours. Is anyone here a a babbler, like when things are on your mind, does it just kind of bubble out of your mouth? Because um, I'm a babbler, and when I'm nervous, I babble, and I, and I sweat a bit like I'm doing now, and I do something else, but we're not going to talk about that, are we, girls? Um, you know, some people call it farting, I just call it tension release. <laughs> if I'd been Esther uh, in the king's court, and he'd asked me what I wanted um, what, what I wanted from him, I would have just let it rip. I would have said, well, to begin with, you need to get rid of Haman. He just sucks. And then you need to like, blah, 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 and I would have gone off. But what does Esther do? She invites the king and Haman to eat with her. She's just been fasting for three days, and now she invites them to eat with her. And at that dinner, he asks her again, whatever you want, name it, it's yours. But again, she simply invites him and Haman for another meal. What incredible self-control Esther had. You see, she knew in her spirit it was all about timing. Haman, meanwhile, thinks he's the best thing since sliced bread. Two personal invites from the Queen in two days, that's pretty amazing. He's full of pride and self-importance, so much so that he raised to his wife, his family, and, well, just basically anyone who will listen to him, just how amazing he is. But he's just got this one problem, this Mordecai. He's like a thorn in his side. What can possibly be done about Mordecai? And then his wife comes up with this wonderful idea. Let's build a pole and ask the king to have Mordecai impaled on it the next day. And Haman thought that was a brilliant idea. Back in Persian times, um, in some translations it says gallows, and we think of the thing like when you're hung with a noose, but, but the Persian... Um, way of hanging someone was, was to impale you on the pole and so that others could see you. It, it was pretty horrific and, um, and that, that was what Haman decided that he would do to Mordecai and, and obviously poles were high so people could see but if you read the scriptures it said that Haman's was like, I don't know, it was equivalent of like seven stories high, the pole he was making. It was like he wanted everyone to see Mordecai on the pole. So meanwhile back in the palace, we get to our verse in Esther 6, verse 1 to 2. That night, the king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought to him and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bagthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. God's timing is everything. Can you see his hand at work? Recently we watched um, that series on Netflix, The Queen's Gambit. Has anyone else watched that? It's, um, I thought when my friend told me it was all about chess, it would be really, really like a big yawn. It was a really good series. But anyway, it, it's like watching the final plays of a game of chess when all the moves are played perfectly and the game is won. The king has the records of his reign read to him only to discover... Dun, 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 that a heroic act done to him to defend him years ago has been left unthanked. 
of all the nights not to be able to sleep. But the night before Haman had planned to confront the king about Mordecai, the very same man that the king was reading about. That is no coincidence but the sovereign hand of God at work. Proverbs 21 verse 1 in the Living Bible says, Just as water is turned into irrigation ditches, so the Lord directs the king's thoughts. He turns them wherever he wants to. How encouraging it is to know that there's no limit to where God's hand can reach. No heart that he cannot turn or soften. He's just as able to work in the Persian palace of a king as he is in the Oval Office and in your workplace. The king asks his attendants, what has been done to honour and recognise Mordecai, only to find out, of course, that nothing has been done. He calls for one of his visors, and who should just arrive but... Come on. Haman! Yes, and um, he asked Haman, what should be done for the man the king delights in, delights to honour? Now, um, Haman was all about Haman, so Haman thought, the king must be talking about me. So um, who else would he want to honour? So Haman told the king that he should put a royal robe on this man, one the king had worn, and that he should ride on one of the king's horses and be led through the city by the king's most respected noble, who should walk ahead of him and say, this is what is done for the man the king delights in. Can you imagine the scene if the story of Esther was made into a blockbuster movie? I'm thinking the script would read a bit like this. Camera pan from King speaking to close-up of Haman's face. Elation fades to confusion and finally, finally to dread as the realisation that the king has just told him to go and do all these things to Mordecai the Jew. The irony of that moment wouldn't have been lost on the people in the streets um, when they heard Haman shouting for Mordecai. They would have all known how he felt about Mordecai. He made no secret of it. In fact, the only person that didn't seem to realise it was that king. He had a hatred for Mordecai. I think it's safe to say that Mordecai was having a bad day. I wonder if he sensed the impending dread that was upon him because no sooner had he returned from his humiliating ordeal of leading Haman around the city but he was ushered to the palace for the Queen Esther's second dinner. Now I'm not sure if King Xerxes was a smart man in fact, he certainly didn't have very good taste in advisers, but even he could tell at this point that Queen Esther had something on her mind and he said to her again, what is your request? What is it that you want to tell me? And finally, the moment was right. The timing was perfect. Esther eloquently asked the king to spare her life and the lives of, the, of her people from the enemy who sought to annihilate them. And when the king heard, he asked, who dares do such a thing? And Esther reveals it's Haman. Until that point, Haman was unaware that Esther was a Jewess. Imagine his surprise and despair. He instantly knew what his fate would be. In a twist of fate that he could never have predicted, Haman was impaled on the very pole that he had built to execute Mordecai on. Now, the story of Esther goes on for another three or four chapters, so just to succinctly round it up, it ends up with, um, the story of Esther winds up with King Xerxes giving Haman's estate to Esther. Having revealed her, that Mordecai was her uncle, um, the king also gives Mordecai his signet ring, making him the, the second most powerful person in the kingdom and prime minister in place of Haman. The king, at Esther's request, 
authorises a new edict to be sent out to the provinces that allows the Jews to fight and defend themselves against any enemies that would choose to attack them under Haman's edict, because remember that they couldn't be reversed. There was so much celebrating by the Jewish people that a special celebration was introduced into the Jewish calendar called the Festival of Purim, which is something that is still celebrated today. What can we learn about the power of timing from the story of Esther? God's time often feels like a long, desperate delay. But while he is never early, he is also never late, but always on time. Just like in the story of Esther, God's perfect timing does two things. It grows our faith and as we're forced to wait and trust in him. And it makes certain that he, and he alone, gets the glory and praise for pulling us through. And you might be in a situation right now, today, where you've got a Haman in your life who might be putting the pressure on you. It might be a person or it might be a situation you find yourself in. I just want to encourage you to take time with the Lord in prayer. And like Esther, ask a trusted friend or friends to stand with you. And if you're one of those trusted friends, if someone in your world has asked you to stand with them, just realise what a wonderful privilege that is. And, um, and don't take it lightly. I love it the way um, Glenn's got the saying, pray like stink. You know, if someone asks you to pray and intercede for them, pray like stink. Esther is an amazing story of God's redeeming love. He took what Haman meant for the annihilation of the Jewish people and he flipped it on its head. At the end of the book of Esther, God's people are in a way better position than they've ever been in for a very, very long time, all because of the bravery and courage of Esther, a woman who chose to stand and recognise the power of one in such a time as this. It's easy to think that God was absent in some parts of the story of Esther, but we must never confuse God's silence with God's absence. While God may not seem visible in our lives at times, we need to be assured that he is always present. While we may not understand the why of each moment, we can always have absolute trust in the who that is sovereign over everything and have faith, because faith is believing in advance what only makes sense in reverse. So when as the band comes back, I just want to encourage you this week to spend a bit of time with God and ask him a few tricky questions. I want you to ask him, is there anything about your posture that he wants you to work on? Is there any person you need to set things right with? Anyone you've held a grudge against that you need to forgive? Any prejudice you hold that you need God's light to shine on? Is there any wrong belief about yourself that you hold that stops you from thinking that you can make a difference? And where has God placed you? Um, You might be here today and something I've said might have pushed a button for you and you'd like some prayer. I'd just love in this time of worship as we close up for you to come and receive prayer. But you also might just want someone to stand with you today. You might be facing circumstances that you just need, you just really want prayer for. And I'd love you to come now um, as we sing and close up the service.